Okay, looks like we're good. Well, hey, um, goodness, it's always a blessing to come out and have the opportunity to, uh, to share, uh, to speak what's on my heart. Uh, it's been a little while, um, but it's good to be back. Be back home in a lot of ways, right? Uh, the old stomping ground. So um, with that being said, I guess we can get going. I, today's going to be a little different, you know? I mean, usually I get up here and I turn into a history teacher, and there will be a little bit of that, right? Uh, but it, it's, it's funny, you know, when, when Eric uh, first asked me to kind of, or gave me opportunities and invited me to, to speak like this in years past, and I felt like a broken record almost, right? Which I'm kind of excited about, because I'm not going to be kind of preaching to the choir. I can actually talk about and go into the agricultural revolution a little bit, right? And, and you guys aren't going to fall asleep, but um, not, not that you fell asleep before, but it's not going to be that. But it's funny, I'm at a point in life where, you know, the, the way that I understand my walk and my relationship with God and the way that I interact with people, like there's new layers that are developing, right? So I'm kind of excited about this talk. With that being said, right, it's not as much in my wheelhouse, so I can't go on for like, you know, 40 minutes or whatever. It's a little shorter, but, but, but I think it's good. So uh, title for today, Living the Truth, Pride and Humility in History and Life. And lucky for you, PowerPoint provided these great suggestions for the slides. So they're, they're really visually appealing. And just look at that colorful ribbon. I mean, it's just awesome. So here we go. Uh, first, we're going to start off in James chapter 4. Verses 10 to 12. If you've got a page number, although it looks like, shoot, look at this. Look at this. We are, I remember the days when, I mean, do you still have the, I, I see, I see him out there. Oh, okay, okay. It's all good. All right, so James, I believe writing to the, uh, community in Jerusalem specifically here. Um, yeah, giving them words of encouragement, starting in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? And as I read this right and I see him referencing the law, then I'm just going to kind of connect that to, to the, right, the greatest command, right? When, when Jesus speaks, uh, is asked, right, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, right? But he also says something very similar, Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that is kind of the encapsulation of that law. So as I read that, right, I, I hear James saying that, but he's inviting us, right, to be humble, to not judge each other, to not criticize each other. How often do we kind of fall into that, right? And we get wrapped up in that, in our day-to-day, -day, in the way that we interact with one another. And how does that affect us, right? That's kind of kind of how I want to engage with this. Here's, here's kind of my, my thesis, right, overriding main argument. or I, 
It's not an argument. It's a point. <laughs> Main point, right? Uh, our pride creates a myopia, right? Kind of a short-sightedness that makes us think we are asserting order into chaos. But in actuality, we often are the ones that create the chaos as we assert our worldview, right? We are so assured in our understanding of the way that we see things should be operating that we think we're speaking, speaking order, right? We're, we're making sense of, of what should be. But most often, it kind of creates a car crash, some chaos, relationally speaking, right? But not just relationally speaking. We got to go history too, right? We, we got some his, historical examples of this for our nation, right? And I'm going to be pulling from a couple books here, the first of which comes from uh, Gordon Wood, Empire of Liberty, A History of the Early Republic, 1789 to 1815. I that one last week. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, the, about a day or two, it was no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it's the Oxford uh, History of the United States series, so, you know, Oxford, I mean, they just want to, yeah. I don't know. You don't have the... Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in that book, right, Wood is talking about, obviously, this is the beginning of, of the nation. This is Pope, right, right after the Constitution, kind of America version 2.0. Uh, and Jefferson asserts this idea, and it's in the title, right, Empire of Liberty, right, America after the Revolution, looking west. Jefferson thinks it's going to be this great land of landowners and farmers. And uh, here's kind of a quote from there. Jefferson had no doubt of the superiority of white agricultural society to the savage state of the native peoples of America. The dynamic white settlers would surround the Indians and circumscribe their hunting grounds and thus pressure them into taking up farming, right? So Jefferson, he knows what's best, right? He looks to the West. He's assured that here's what's going to happen, right? The system that, that we have, that we trust in our national system, is going to head out west. It's going to bring the fruits of civilization, and that obviously is the best way to go, right? Um, or, or is it, right? And, and we see a lot of that has to do with this prevailing attitude later on in the 19th century of manifest destiny, right? And that's the picture that we've got there. If you know that image, right? And I've used this in lecture, or this isn't a lecture. Well, although I have used it in lectures, in talks in the past, right? This, um, yeah, America bringing civilization, bringing order, bringing light, bringing technology into kind of the, the dark void of the wilderness, right? Jefferson is assured of that. But what about the chaos, right? And that's where um, Anne Hyde, in her book, Empires, Nations, and Families, A New History of the uh, North American West from 1800 to 1860, she looks at it this way, right? She, she kind of comes alongside Wood and she says, yeah. She talks about what was really in the West, right? Was it this void of a wilderness? She elevated that where Jefferson saw chaos, there was actually order of a fur trade, right? A fur trade situation where, you know, the Spanish, the French, the native tribes, uh, the Russians, the British, they're engaging with each other. There's, there's a life that is happening. It's a life that's different from what Jefferson thinks to be, needs to be happening, but there's a life that has structure and order, right? But that's about to change. 
That's about to change as America pushes west. As the great stabilizing structure, Hyde writes, of the fur trade and the power that held, uh, power held by the native people who stood at, at its center both began to crumble, these outside irritants became frightening harbingers of change. Central to that change was the presence of an increasingly powerful state, the United States. Uh, something new on the Western landscape. This state and the demographic changes it brought with it promised order and opportunity, but instead brought disorder and chaos. And that's kind of what influenced my talk today, right? This idea that America thought it was bringing order into the West, but in actuality, it took what had been an ordered, orderly situation and made it chaotic and trying to force it to you know, fit the prescribed understanding of liberty. So what did that look like? What were the effects of that? Well, again, a quote from uh, Wood. In 1802, three quarters of the tribes along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers perished from disease. Wood continues, so confident were Jefferson and other enlightened Americans in the capacity of people to reinvent themselves and to become civilized that none of them had any capacity whatsoever to comprehend the terrible human cost involved in destroying a way of life. And I think, I think this is important for, for the, uh, the talk today. They always thought they were acting in the best long-run interests of the native peoples, right? Jefferson, he thought, hey, this is, this is the way life should be, right? I mean, it's obvious. It's duh, right? But did he think that it was going to lead to death, right? Did he know the consequences of trying to take one type of life and force it, right, onto someone else. Uh, Hyde uh, also writes of this chaos. Vigilantism, and she's writing specifically about Southern California, right? So this is um, kind of gold rush, gold rush Southern California, right, uh, post-Mexican-American War. Here, here's the order that America brings to Southern California. Vigilantism and miners' law filled in the gaps Race war and violence plagued Southern California. The state reported 2,400 murders, 1,400 suicides, 10,000 other miserable deaths. The practice of lynching Mexicans soon became an outdoor sport in Southern California. In 1857, four Mexicans were lynched in El Monte, 11 in Los Angeles. That's some great order, right? There's some order that has been brought into this chaos, or is it? It looks like in trying to force, you know, a certain understanding that Jefferson was so assured of on this place that it actually brought chaos. Let's look at, let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, agricultural revolution. Let's go, let's go Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. And, you know, I said that my... It only took me 20 minutes when I ran through it uh, at home, but now I'm going to have to totally dive into the agricultural revolution. So that's another hour. I, I think you were right with your hour and a half. So, All right, we're not going quite all the way back to the beginning, but we're, we're taking it back to Cain and Abel, right? This is chapter 4, verses, I know it says 1 through 10. I think I'm going to go through 12. I'm going to go through 12. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife. Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. 
When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, What have you done? Listen! Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. So, we got two different forms of, of living here, right? Of, of using the land. We've got a herder, and we've got a, uh, a planter, right? Someone who's, who's growing crops, a farmer. Um, the historical context of this, right, if we go all the way back to the agricultural revolution, right, is one form of life, hunting, gathering, right, herding, uh, which predated the agricultural revolution, coming into conflict with now, okay, we need to subdue the land, in a more controlled fashion, right? We can control that land. You herders, mm, you can't be on my land, right? Uh, gathering on my land, no, this is my land that I control, right? That I, I gain crops from. And we see this kind of, uh, right, from the agricultural revolution lens and how it relates to, to God, this idea of I can control things, right? I, I, I can control this, I can grow the crops, I can take care of myself, there's security in that. Um, and, you know, is that part of the deeper message of, of this, you know, why Cain is not, why his offering is not accepted and Abel's is? What we know is that Cain doesn't like the rejection, right? He says, whoa, my way of life isn't right. My way of life isn't correct, right? What's going on here? Why am I not accepted? How does he respond? Well, this is, this is a pretty uh, extreme, right, uh, example, but... He responds with murder, right? He kills. He says, he says hey, why is, why is my offering not good enough, right? Why my pride is hurt, right? My, my worldview, the, the way that I do things isn't working, right? Pride over worldview got in the way of Cain's ability to love his brother, right? That relationship, in an extreme fashion, was severed forever, right? There's no, no getting that back, right? And here's, here's my pivot point, right? So usually I just keep going on, right, with social, you know, uh, the, the big picture, or, you know, that sort of thing. So how do, what does that mean for us then, right? In our day-to-day -day relationships with each other, how does our pride affect the way that we, we live together and, and support one another, right? How does pride get in the way of our ability to love one another? All right, so let's go personal. Family disagreements, Right? We're not going to go super personal, but uh, we all have them, right? With, with the in-laws, with, with cousins, with, you know, 
with different groups, especially in the, the era of social media, right? And you get, you get on and, and, and you're assured of, of your understanding, right? And you get into the debate, you get into the discussion, and bridges are, are burnt, right? And you come out of that discussion and you're like, man, yeah, I was right, you know, and I won. But what did you win? You know, I mean, are you furthering the kingdom in that? You might think that, hey, right, socially we need to stand up for the downtrodden, right? I mean, we can't look at this group of people that way and we need to be more accepting of them and you need to accept them, right? And yeah, you know, I'm standing up for them. But now that relationship is strained, right? Church disagreements. And I, I will go personal on this. So, right, we found a new church out in Riverside, Okay, and this was eye-opening for me. Um, you know, a church that, that resonated with us. Um, the pastor was on point, right? I mean, I, feeding me intellectually, right, man? These sermons were like, dude, right? I was, I was there. It was great. Uh, and, but it's a, it's a church that offers five-year terms of the pastor, right? Which was, which was new to me, too, because I'm like, well, the pastor is the pastor, Right? Uh, so, you know, leadership council is like, hey, make sure that you respond to um, the survey that went out, right? Kind of giving the, the pastor a, uh, you know, a grade or whatever. And this is in the midst of COVID, right? So we've been kind of on virtual for three months by this point. And then I get a call and it's like, hey, Elliot, you know, because I'm, I'm a deacon, right, at the church. Hey, Elliot, just want to let you know we're not going to bring the pastor back. And I'm like, whoa, this is crazy, right? Also, in the midst of that, we had started as a church, we decided to engage with the, the question over LGBTQ, right? Like, as a church, as a church body, you know, where do we stand and, and how do we want to engage there, right? And, like, personally, I'm like, hey, this is kind of cool to ask that question, right? This... Um, but then it turns out, and the pastor started a whole series on it, and he was, he was constructing, like, okay, how do, we, how do we navigate this? And most of the voices in the church sounded like they were supportive of the LGBTQ community and, and wanted to, to engage with the community that way. He, the pastor was creating sermons that were developing a path to accomplish that, but at the same time, we were in a denomination that was like, okay, we're supportive of like trying to figure out a third way and how to engage, but there are limits to how far we're going to allow you to go, right? Which some of the members on the leadership council were like, well, we don't know if we want to be hemmed in, right? Like maybe we, if we are led to go further, maybe we want to be able to go further. The pastor told them, listen, I'm not going to be willing to do that. Like I'll, I'll construct this third way, right? And do what we can, but I'm not going to challenge the, the denomination. And the pastor felt, when we had him over for dinner, like, I think that was part of it. Like, leadership was just uncomfortable that I wasn't going to be willing to go all the way. So I'm sitting there like, whoa, right? And all this has happened. I mean, COVID, LGBTQ questions, pastor losing job, right? And then that had ramifications, right? Like, it was like this bomb that was just dropped on the whole congregation. And everyone's like, what the the pastor's gone, you know, we need to talk about this more, they, they had forms and discussions, and the church is like imploding, 
right? Like just falling apart. Um, and we're sitting there and it's like, okay, like, you know, how many of my sermons have I, been, or talks, right? Have I been up here talking about stuff like LGBTQ, right? Like, man, like we got to have a heart for this, you know? But now I've lived through a literal example of trying to put that into practice and just fracture, right? Fracture a body that was doing good work. I mean, Maria had a hand in, uh, in the midst of the refugee situations years past, right? And putting together packets for that. And the church was a big part of that. And like it was on a whim and like it was powerful and getting stuff to people who needed it. And, and now that, that body, that activity seemingly is wounded, right? It's disappeared. And wow. And literally like the pastor saying, that he had examples of other churches back in Pennsylvania where a pastor did the exact same thing and people from the denomination showed up one day and said, well, listen, if you're on board with the pastor, he's no longer the pastor. You can follow him wherever, but, right? And he, he didn't want to see that happen. And it's like, wow, is that kind of what we're experiencing here? So what do we do, right? What do we do there? And what does that mean, right? Pursuing this truth personally, as we understand it, right, and maybe our prideful truth that we hold on to, it results in tearing a church apart that had been helping to build the kingdom in meaningful ways, right? And now it's wounded, and it's because, you know, certain individuals in the church, and their heart was telling them, like, listen, this is speaking to me on the LGBTQ, right? Like, I'm hearing that. But now it's, man, you know, So in closing, let's go to Philippians. Philippians 2. And Philippians is always a hard one for me to find. It's like right in that space in the New Testament, right? I think it's right after Ephesians. I found it. Lucky me. So what do we do with this? What's it all about? Let's see what Paul has to say. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think specifically, right? I mean, obviously seeking to be, to follow in the footsteps of Christ, right? 
But verse 3, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others is better than yourselves, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And I'm always left with, with questions, right, when I, when I put these talks together, right? Like, like, how do we bring it together, right? How do we, how do we hold to our, what we feel like is, is true in our heart, right? Like, like those things that like, man, we need to do this, yet what if it disagrees with, you know, someone else's heart, right? And I think that those verses, I mean, finding out how to be humble, in those interactions and elevate the other, right? Is that where it's at? Right, Here, here's my closing. Live the truth in humility, right? Try to check your pride in those personal relationships or in those national relationships, right? Thomas Jefferson. Uh, don't allow debates over the truth to get in the way of loving one another. It doesn't matter how right we are if in asserting our position we are alienating community and we can't build the kingdom without community. I guess you could build a kingdom without community, but it'd be a pretty lonely kingdom. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know if it's the kingdom, right? So, Here's everyone's, right? This, this is what we're, what we're really here for. A little talk back. Any questions, comments, concerns? Can you think of a time when pride got in the way of a relationship with someone? How does pride hinder our ability to love one another? How do we rebuild broken bridges in relationships? Is that it? It is. And maybe, and, and I wasn't sure about this one, but how do we, right, the... Like we feel something in our hearts so strongly, right? Yet, don't let it ruin relationships. Like the social, right? But, but the personal. How do we, right? How do we maintain that? I didn't know how to put that in question form. I think I need it in my hands. Okay. Uh, so yeah, uh, feel free to discuss a little bit and then we'll share out and yeah.